Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This week is Pasha's Taldos, and we're going to continue discussing the Halachas of Hamaitzi. Um, this week we're going to talk about Pas, Habba Kisnen again. This is part three. So last time we learned, it's been a while, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the qualifications of Pas Habba Kisnen. What makes something literally dessert bread, where the halacha is that you don't make hamaitzi and you don't bench unless you eat a sufficient amount of it, or your kaveya suda, you make it your principal meal, as we explained last time. But otherwise, on Pasababikistan, you make a mezainus and you make an alhamichya. And there are three possible kinds of Pasababikistan, where the main bracha is, the typical bracha would be mezainus. What are the three kinds? So one is sweet or flavored bread. This is category number one, sweet or flavored bread. It means that the dough has been sweetened or spiced or a lot of oil or margarine has been added to the point where it tastes different than ordinary bread. In this category, one thing would be uh, flaky dough, which has been made with a lot of margarine until it tastes and looks, looks different. Cookie dough as well is filled with sugar and therefore tastes sweet. So even if you make a bread-like product out of the cookie dough, it would still be mezainus. However, what is known as mezainus rolls, which uh, we talked about this last time, which is that they they, uh, don't really taste any different than a regular roll. They just have been made with apple juice, and that doesn't render them mezainus. They are hamaiti as we mentioned last time, and besides the fact that they don't taste different, the flavor hasn't changed, they also are designed to serve the same exact purpose as regular bread. They aren't dessert bread, they're not pasta babakistan, they're regular pas, which has been made with apple juice. So therefore they remain hamaitzi. I was just in uh, Eretz Yisrael, and one morning I bought something which is called a bagel, it wasn't what we would call a bagel, it was a roll shaped in the form of a bagel, <clears throat> and it was labeled Berchoseh Mezainus. It was labeled with the Brachos Mezainus. So I was making it my breakfast, so I washed on it, but it actually did taste considerably different than regular bread. It wasn't a taste that I particularly appreciated, but it did taste very different. So that was the justification for it to being Berchoseh Mezainus. Then it would ta- then it would actually be passable to Kisnen. And this category is the reason why cookies, knishes, franks and blanks, garlic knots, and so on, are mezainus. So that's category number one, where the actual dough, the actual bread product, tastes different. Two is the bread is the same. It's regular dough. Nothing's been changed about the dough, but it's been filled. It's been filled with something dessert-like. Uh, for example, kakosh cake, which is regular bread dough, which has been filled with chocolate filling. Now, filled here doesn't have to mean literally filled, <clears throat> because even if it just has a filling on top, that's also possible because For example, my family made last week these little pizza-like things, which had pastrami bits and onions on top of them. And their bracha was mezainus because they are passabakistan, because they were filled with other things, although it wasn't like wrapped around it like a cookie cake, but it was on top of it. That's also called passabakistan. It's also called filled as a filling, and, it, and they are more like a snack food. <clears throat> now, this category is the reason why cookie cake and pie are mezainous, 
And this is also the reason why some Paiskim did once consider pizza and calzones to be mezainas at one point in, uh, in history. However, um, pizza and calzones are hamaiti, even if you eat only one slice, even if you only eat a bite. The reason to consider pizza mezainas was because it was looked at as a snack food. And perhaps 40 years ago, when Ramesha Feinstein gave that sack, it was perceived that way. Europeans definitely look at it that way. My parents, being European, do still consider it a snack. They would not uh, let you get away with pizza for a supper. But the overwhelming majority of Americans don't look at it that way, and they most certainly make pizza a meal. Certainly children will make pizza even one slice a meal. And therefore, almost all places can agree that nowadays pizza and calzones are hamaiti, and even a small piece. Kakash cakes, just for contrast, will never be considered a meal. It's by definition a dessert. And even if people get away with that for their breakfast, it just means it's in lieu of breakfast, they're eating a piece of cake. In Shulchan Aruch as well, there is a clear distinction made between bread filled with sugar and, and uh, fruit, which is always mezainous, whereas bread filled with filled with meat or cheese, like pizza, is most often hamaiti because it's the main course of a meal. So pizza does not fill this qua- this uh, qualification of Passover Bikistan because it's filled with cheese and it's considered a main course, a meal in a, of itself, and it hasn't been converted into dessert bread by the fact that you have put cheese on it, and that, therefore it maintains its status as regular bread. You have to make hamaiti on it. This is the second category of Passover Bikistan. The third category of Passover Bikistan is uh, crackers, meaning that the bread isn't really different than regular bread, but it has been baked in a way which makes it dessert-like or snack-like, meaning it has been made into a thin, hard cracker or like a pie crust. Now, regular toast doesn't fall into this category simply because toast started out as regular bread. So toasting it doesn't change that. But croutons, which are made for salad, the kind you buy in the store in a bag, you know, those uh, not the yellow little thingies, but the, the big salad croutons, those are mezainas. Why are they mezainas? I mean, what are they? Their bread has been toasted, right? The reason is because they do fall under this category because they were originally baked and made for this purpose. They weren't originally bread that was then toasted. They were made and and baked and toasted in order to create croutons, so they were made with the intention of creating a dessert-like or a, this kind of passable bikistan. So technically, this is important to know, is that if you do that, or your shaloms does that, or any store, what they do is they take their leftover bread, and then they convert it into croutons, and if you do that at home, it will be hamaiti. That won't be mezainis. So you can't take regular bread and turn it into salad croutons and then think you don't have to wash on it. You will. But if you originally take dough and bake it into salad croutons, then it'll be mezainis because it has this cracker-like consistency, which has the halacha of Passover Bikistan. Um, you might be familiar that Sephardim make a mezainis on matzah the whole year. And the reason is because matzah does fit into the last category of Passover Bikistan. It's thin and it's hard. It's a cracker. Why then do we make hamaiti? The reason is because everybody, including Sephardim, make a hamaiti on matzah on Pesach. On Pesach, everybody makes hamaiti. Why? Because that's the only bread on Pesach. So by default, it gets the status of real bread. And Ashkenazim holds that once it has the status of bread on Pesach, 
it maintains that status the whole year. It can't change just due to the time of year. And that's why we make Hamaytziyah Masa the whole year. But Sephardim hold, it can change its halacha. So the rest of the year, they make a Mazinus. A good question is, when I was in Yeshiva, there was this product, I don't know if it still exists, but Manashevitz made this product, Masa crackers, which are really a regular machine Masa, just small pieces made into the shape of a cracker. Is that Hamaytziyah Mazinus? It's just a small Masa, right? So it would stand to reason, though, that since it's been designed to be a snack, so it does fit into the last category of Passover and it will be Mazinus. Truth is, every flatbread, what's a flatbread? Flatbread's just a matzah. That's all it is. They, you know, I don't know if they're macbed on 18 minutes, and they, well, don't advise that you use it on Pesach, but a flatbread is just a matzah, and we make a Mazinus on it. Why? Because it's designed to be a snack. So the consistency isn't as much the rule here as more what was in, was had in mind when it was made. So going back to to uh, a matzah, cracker-like thing. So a cracker is Passover because it's designed to be a snack and it's hard. And the fact that it's, it's thin and hard demonstrates that it was designed to be a snack. Regular matzah is amaitzi because regular matzah, although it's thin and hard, doesn't compromise its status as bread. But if you do design your matzah into little crackers or or um, flatbreads or so on and so forth, where it's clearly been designed to be a snack, then it will be a mezzanus. So just to summarize, we have here three categories. Category number one is where the dough itself has been made sweet or spicy or oily, and then you can taste the actual taste of the difference. It's going to be a mezzanus. That's one kind of Passover kiss. And the second kind is even if the dough is the same, but it's been filled with a filling which makes it into Passover kitchen, like a sweet filling or a fruit filling, like a pie, like a cupcake, but pizza, which is filled with cheese and made designated to be a meal, designated to retain its status as bread, as the bread of the meal does not fall into this category. That really may have tea. And the last category is if it's been baked in a way that demonstrates that it's a snack, that means it's hard and it's thin and it's also been designed to be a snack, and flatbreads and all the you know, crackers fall into this category. Those are also mezainas. Parsh has told us is interesting because the Torah dedicates three full parshias to the life of Abram, his tests, his achievements. The Torah dedicates three full parshias to Yaakov Avinu's life and his tests and his achievements. Yitzhak Avinu gets all of one parsha told us, and most of the parsha is not about him. It's about Yaakov and Esau. Truly, when we look at the Avis, we know the Torah wants us to emulate the Avis and learn from them. We study what's said in the Pasha, and although we're very, very far from grasping even an iota of Avram's greatness, his actions, his kavanas, his dedication, his mysterious nefesh, his fire, his Avis Hashem, and so on, nevertheless, we learn. We learn, we learn what we can. We learn from him, and we are inspired to emulate him and, and as best we can in our own way. And the same goes for Yaakov, for Yaakov Avinu. We observe his patience with love and his honesty to the superhuman level, his MS, his acceptance of all the difficulty and tragedy that Hashem put into his life. And we have so much to learn. Even if we barely understand it and grasp it, but we yet can learn so much from it. But what are we meant to learn from Yitzchak? We know so little about Yitzchak because the Torah shears so little about him. All we know is that he loved Esav. Kitzayid Befiv. He somehow fooled him, and that only creates confusion for us. Was he fooled? Was he not? What was his reasoning? What justified him giving the brachas to Esau? But that's not what Yitzhak was meant to demonstrate to us. What about Yitzhak's life was meant to demonstrate 
how Yitzhak lived, what he, what he represented as an Av. We know that Avram's Mida was Chesed, and that's made abundantly clear in the Torah. Yaakov's Mida is Emes, and Tyra, and living in Golis, and many other points. What is Yitzhak's Mida? Mida Sadin, the attribute of judgment? How do we see that? What are we meant to learn from it? If the Torah would not tell us anything about Yitzhak, so, well, we would conclude that clearly we aren't meant to learn directly from Yitzhak's life. But that's not exactly true. The whole middle of the parasha does tell us about Yitzhak's life. It's just a little unclear what we're meant to learn from it. What does the Torah tell us about Yitzhak's life? The Torah tells us how Yitzhak was faced with a hunger, a famine, and had to abandon his dwelling place, just as Abram had to. But he was told by Hashem, in contrast to Abram, he was told, don't leave Eretz Yisrael. Why not? Rashi explains he was an oil tmima. He had been created into a carbon by the Akedah, and he was too holy to leave Eretz Yisrael and go to Chutzar. So he moves to Pelishtim, and he has to hide his identity, as Avram did, and soon is discovered by the king Abimelech. After being discovered, the Torah tells us of his unprecedented hatzlocha in business. He planted, and his crops grew 100 times more than anyone else's. So much so that the king, out of jealousy and fear, drove him away. The Rashi says, people were saying, we prefer to have Yitzchak's fertilizer than Abimelech the king's crops. I heard once a beautiful thought from a uh, Meshulach. He came to my house once in Lakewood and he told me a beautiful word on this. He said that, <clears throat> he said that the chat is very simple. He says, when a non-Jew sees Yitzchak having so much hatzlacha, so much success, a hundred times more than normal, what do they say? They don't say, oh, it looks like God is helping him. No, that's not what they say. They say he, he must have good fertilizer. <laughs> what else is making his crops grow a hundred times more than anyone else? So they want his Fertilizer, right? You invest money, what do you get? Uh, 10%, that's, that's tremendous, right? Here, get Yitzchak's fertilizer, you'll get 100% on your investment. Anyway, so you, the king, jealousy, fear, drives him away. Hashem appears to him again, and he says, don't worry, I'm with you. And once again, Yitzchak is highly successful. But the servants of the king try to steal his wealth, they dig up his uh, wells, they take it away. And finally, after a number of such events, Yitzchak finally confronts the king. The king came to meet him. The king swears allegiance to Yitzchak and begs him to make a treaty with him. And Yitzchak is successful finally in keeping the well that he dug. And that's it. That's the story that Tanya tells us about Yitzchak. A little bit about his life, his success, his prosperity, his power. But what are we meant to learn from this? What does it teach us? What can we possibly get from this to learn how to emulate Yitzchak? Now, I don't know the proper answer to this question, but I, I was thinking, and one thing I think is demonstrated here, is that Yitzchak adopted the approach of a Jew who serves Hashem and does not seek to go out there. Yitzchak did not go out and try to bring the word of Hashem to all the nations as Abram did. It wasn't his, it wasn't his particular Avedah. And Yitzhak was not thrust among the nations to live with them, as Yaakov had to do with Lavan and Shechem and then Mitzrayim. Yitzhak lived the life of a Jew who truly keeps to himself and serves Hashem through tefillah, and learning Torah, and all forms of Avaidah that we can't even imagine. Yitzhak kept his interactions with the outside world to a minimum. His focus was Avaidah Hashem. He was an Eulah Tamima. He was the most perfect and holy Jew possible. And he didn't even go into Chutzlaretz. He kept to himself. That's made pretty clear in the Torah. And the parasha then demonstrates an amazing thing. 
Yitzhak achieved the same amount of acclaim, prosperity, fame, and power that Avram did. Just as Avimelech came to Avram and begged him to treaty with him, Avimelech did so with Yitzhak as well. And the Mepharshim point out that to Yitzhak he came with his general, which perhaps was even a greater honor than was bestowed on Avram. Yitzhak had unprecedented growth and power and wealth, though he didn't seek to interact with the heavyweight businessmen or to get influence with the politicians or anything. All he wanted was to sit at home behind closed windows and serve Hashem and all the blessings of this world. Anything that one could possibly imagine is, so to speak, success in this world came flowing in his direction. And this represents a very important Jewish value. If we serve Hashem properly and we do our best to daven and to learn and to perfect ourselves as Hashem desires, Hashem will fill in all the rest. If we keep our head in the Siddur, in the Gemara, with full devotion, the nations of the world will come running to our feet and begging to have a connection with us. If we try to be our best, to be honest, and do what's necessary to make a clean and proper living, the wealth and power will come flowing our way, 100% more than our natural effort. Avram adopted his own path in Avedis Hashem, which was different than Yitzchak. Yaakov actually tried to emulate his father by being a Yeshiva Halam. He wanted to sit in his tent and learn. He didn't seek to go out into the world. He served Hashem in private, but Hashem had a different plan for him. Hashem put him into Galus. But as far as having worldly success, what we perceive as success, fame, power, wealth, all things physical, none of these were dependent on any of the above. Simply serving Hashem as best as one can, dedicating one's life <clears throat> to davening and learning and doing mitzvahs is sufficient to bring every single possible worldly, worldly desire and achievement to our doorstep without us even doing anything more than the bare minimum towards that goal. Someone who is an Eivet Hashem is blessed and all blessing comes pouring towards them. Perhaps that's part of what the Torah wants us to learn from Yitzchak as one of our others. He demonstrates that Jew, the Jew who doesn't need to go out anywhere, doesn't need to do anything else but serve Hashem, and will achieve every possible hatzlacha that there can be in this world. Have a good night and a good Shabbos.